In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul has revealed that we have been chosen by God the Father to become His sons and daughters, and that we are one big family composed of Jews and Gentiles. Let's discover with our study leader Dave Wurtson what the Apostle had to say about holding the household of God together. It's going to be Thanksgiving before we know it, and a lot of you are going to be gathered together with your blood families. You have relatives coming in. Some of you have brothers and sisters that come in. Some of you will be traveling to your parents' house, and you're going to be all getting together. What happens when you're trying to be one big happy family? What about that vacation that you went on? You know, it's this great big family vacation and you all get crammed into one of those minivans and you've got 16 kids and the minivan is only built for eight kids and you're going to be one big happy family. But as you start driving, after 12 hours, when dad won't stop to let you go to the bathroom, what starts to happen to the one big happy family? That's true in your blood families. Let's suppose that we talk about the family of God like this morning. We're supposed to be the family of God. We've been learning in Ephesians that the Lord Jesus has come into our life, that he's redeemed us, that he's forgiven us. He's placed us in what he calls his body. And that's what the Apostle Paul's been talking to us about. He's been talking about the fact that, that all different kinds of people that used to be dead in their sins in chapter 2 have now been made alive in Christ. Now just imagine... Just imagine that now we're not just blood families, physical families that are struggling to get along, but now we have people that aren't related at all. What's going to happen then? I want you to think over your life. Just think about the struggles for unity in the family. I think of my own life. I remember when uh, I was going to Dallas Seminary and Mary and I bought a demon. We actually bought, it was a car, not a real demon. We bought a demon up in Nebraska. We drove it down here. We were both really proud of it because it was really a sharp, white, little Chrysler. And, and uh, I, the seminary at that time, I had a parking lot that had big uh, wooden poles in the middle of it. And I parked right by one of those wooden poles. And I ran in and I got my mail and checked up some things with some professors. I came running out. And that wooden pole was right in the blind spot of my car. And I had to back up a little bit. And when I backed up, I caved in the whole back end of that car. I mean, it looked like I had been on 75 and I had killed myself. I mean, it looked like a big 18-wheeler just came in and just socked the whole back end of the car. I, you know, I could still drive it barely with the back tire falling off. And I took it across the street. I didn't have to go far. I parked in the, the parking lot of what used to be a Swissland apartment. And then I took off, you know, like every good husband. I took off somewhere. I forget what I was doing. But when I came back, Mary wouldn't let me into the apartment. She was absolutely furious. And she was furious because she thought I'd been killed. And some of you that have heard that story, she also was furious because she thought I'd been killed. But when she found out that I wasn't killed, then she wished I had been killed. Any of you wives ever been there, done that? You suddenly realized that you didn't marry this incredibly gifted, intelligent, wise, mature, faithful, dependable, always gentle, always consistent, never has any accident. You suddenly realize that you married, in some areas of life, a real jerk. And you know what? You get really angry at that point. Some of you this morning are angry like that. 
you're angry like that because you're very disillusioned with your life partner because you know what? You found out that your life partner just is no ideal person. Now, you need to make some decisions. Mary, behind that locked door, early in our marriage, needed to decide whether we're going to hold this together or whether we're going to be out of here. And you're going to have to decide that, okay? And that's what we want to talk about. Why are we one big happy family? And this needs to get, like, the church begins in our commitment to our families. In other words, the local church is modeled after our individual families. That's why I start out with that decision. Mary, behind a lock apartment door, had to decide whether we're going to end this relationship that began with some holy vows in Nebraska because it's really going bad. I married an idiot. And you've got to decide what we're going to do about that. And maybe there's another guy, like the, she was working at a doctor's office that has doctors that make $150,000 a year. And they're really sharp looking and they're in their late, almost their late 30s and, and they love a young girl in her 20s. And these guys are much more stable than her young idiotic husband that is going to seminary trying to get through grad school and half the time doesn't even think that he works. You got the picture? You're going to be there. You're going to face that. What about the church? I remember uh, after we started Midlothian Bible Church, we've been rocking along for about a year, and Jonathan was born in October. He was the only kid in our church at the time. Can you imagine that? We had, we had a nursery. Jonathan was the nursery. And we were over in Overlook, the old youth center. All the teenagers can identify. We're over in the youth center, and we were having, we used to have this sharing time. I would speak, and then we would have like a sharing time. It'd just be a wide open time for the whole church family to ask questions and stuff. They were great days. And Jonathan, it was probably after he was about a year, he was getting around, and he had just barely begun to walk. So he was probably about a, maybe 14 months, something like that. And so he was very restless. So I took him outside and, and toddled behind him. Have you ever seen a daddy doing that? You know, the toddler is outside the church. Mary did it yesterday with Corby's child during a wedding. Uh, Mary had to take care of Corby's son. And she took him out. And, and I, I can just picture it. Mary's toddling behind. Not toddling, but walking behind the toddler. How many of you ever seen a dad do that or a mom do that? Okay. I was doing that. I was trying to keep the service from being disturbed. I got a call later on that week. A couple of our church leaders wanted to talk to me. They sat down with me and they said, you know, in essence, we love you, Dave. You're a great teacher. You're really, man, you're a marvelous communicator. But, you know, your son is really out of control. And we, we, we think he's very undisciplined. And as a young father, we just want to tell you that, you know, you just don't have any control over your son. I mean, you left the service. And also, by the way, you know, your wife's very unfriendly. And she's not a Texan at all. It's really obvious. She's from north of the Mason-Dixon line because she just doesn't bubble and she doesn't effervesce. And she's kind of this Nebraskan, doesn't talk. You know, those are a heavy, we laugh today, but those are serious times. As a young husband, how do I react? And you know what? You get angry. You all have been there, done that. You all should be thinking of situation. I have to decide, okay. I just took on the mantle. I'm going to be pastor, teacher of the church. Two of my key leaders are reaming me out. And maybe some of what they said is true, and I need to be open to that, but I also can feel really misunderstood, especially when I've got my new wife that's trying to adjust to a new community. What am I going to do? In other words, it would have been very easy to say to those guys, listen, guys, I don't really need this. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to work at my dad's organization upstate New York. They appreciate me more. 
And so those are the things. I, I, the, the issue that I'm raising is I can get angry and I'm out of here. Now, I didn't make that decision. I want to tell you why today. And I want you all to think about why we need to be one big happy family. We sing it. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. But the issue is going to be, what are you going to do when you're not so glad you're part of this family of God? What are you going to do when you're not so glad you're part of this particular marriage? Let me give you another illustration. I just got through. There were several hundred teenagers in an audience. And I had just come from doing a camp in Nebraska. I went to another Bible conference. God had powerfully worked at the camp. And the whole point of the camp, we were teaching kids how to make an impact. For example, we, were, we took Nebraskan you know, kids that were going to the University of Nebraska, where Paul just graduated from. And, and we had these kids share how they actually moved into the freshman door and, and lived for Jesus. And I built all my messages around how the body of Christ in the New Testament invaded their marketplace for Jesus. And, and I gave all kinds of creative ways. Like one of the things we did is I, had, I taught them all how to share their faith and how to, in other words, we made sure every one of those 600 kids had shared their faith. They learned how to do that. I broke them up. I taught them how to do that. Then I broke them up and they all practiced it. We had an incredible time. And man, I was as high as a kite. I got in the boat with the leader of the camp, went across the lake and I was getting ready to preach in another situation. And the guy looked at me and said, you know, Wurtzen, you're really out of touch with kids. What you just taught those kids is from another planet. I don't buy it. You see, you're teaching those kids that it's okay to go to the University of Texas or the University of Nebraska. And I think that's horrible. Because we need kids to go to the Christian atmosphere. And this whole idea, like, maybe your sons can handle it at the University of Texas. But that's not what we want to teach kids, because kids need to be separated from the world, not be in the world. And I don't want you to ever teach like that again. Now, I've got to make a decision. You know what? That makes you mad. And I can easily decide that. I want to share with you honestly what goes through your mind at that point is I don't want to ever speak at this camp again. And I'm not going to ever use my gift. And I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you because every one of you are going to be there in your marriage. You're going to be there in your friendships. You're going to be there in your church. One of the things that the Apostle Paul is saying, in fact, more importantly, Paul is building on what Jesus prayed in John 17. Father, I pray that this group of people sitting before me, listening to me speak today, I pray that they might be one, even as we are one, even as the Trinity is one, I pray that they might be one, so that by this the world might know that they're my disciples. And by this they'll know that you're my disciple because you love one another. And to be really frank with you, if I was going to reject Christianity, I wouldn't reject it because there's not enough evidence for the resurrection. I wouldn't reject it because of the, the priests that have been abusing children. Those are all you know, pretty good reasons to turn away from the faith, although we can answer those questions. But I want to share with you why I would turn away, because believers don't get along. I've been raised in this all my life. In fact, when you go into a town, there's the first church of brother they love, and then there's a second church of the brother they love, and the third church of the brother they love. And the reason there's a third church is because the third church of brother they love couldn't get along with the second church of brother they love who couldn't get along with the first church of brother they love. Our families are blown apart about the same rate that unbelieving families are. So something's wrong there. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to hang together, but we're not hanging together and our marriage is very good. The other thing is the Dallas-Fort Worth area is filled with people that can't get along in their churches. And so we want to talk about that today. And what I love about the Apostle Paul is that he spells out chapter 1 through 3, but then he says, okay, in light of what I've taught you, 
I want you to think about really carefully about opening yourself up to where the Holy Spirit wants to live. And as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins his whole practical message. And I want to share with you that you can be in Christ one big happy family, but it's going to take some work. Did you hear what I just said? Happy families don't just happen. Church unity doesn't just happen. Your marriage, like when Mary's behind the door locking me out, we're not feeling gushy, romantic love stories together. It's not like, you know, you know, when you wish upon a star, your dreams can come true and some enchanted evening. It is some you-know-what of an evening. Now, how are you going to make it through those times? And I was upset when the elders talked to me. And I was thinking about leaving the ministry. It's not such a good idea. And you're going to be there. And look what Paul says. He begins in Ephesians Ephesians 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord. Remember I told you, the Apostle Paul has emphasized, he does it at chapter 3, verse 1, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He talks about, in verse 13 of chapter 3, because of my sufferings for you, which is your glory. Remember, the man that's teaching us is the real thing. He's actually sitting in a Roman imprisonment because of what he believes. Very important. Another idea that the Apostle Paul has in this phrase, he uses the phrase, I could say, I'm a prisoner for Jesus, but I could also translate it, I'm a prisoner in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm not just a Roman prisoner, but I think Paul also has the idea that my life is imprisoned by Jesus. Not in a negative sense, but the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm not getting out of here. Jesus has me. Paul's favorite expression to describe a believer is that you're in Christ. You're intimately joined with Christ. The Apostle Paul would say that I'm a debtor because of what's happened to me and I'm not going to ever get out of this Christ thing. And I think that as Paul begins this, he's saying, I'm teaching you and I want you to know that I'm really connected with Christ, that I'm under his direction. One of the things he stressed to us over and over again is that he is the servant, he's the slave of Jesus. Who are you the slave of? Who's imprisoned you? And this is the idea of being imprisoned in love. And it'll change your circumstances. If you think you're imprisoned by Rome, if you think you're imprisoned and and you're controlled by all these negative things and you can't escape it and everything's out of control, you're going to go nuts. You're going to be angry. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to blow your relationships like crazy. But if you can believe, if I'm in prison in Rome, if I'm in a really bad time, if I'm in a really testing time, but my Savior is really still in control, and I'm his prisoner. In other words, I'm Jesus' prisoner. This is my, if I'm in prison, then that's my place to shine for the kingdom. And, and that's my place to look for what Jesus wants to do through my life. It changes everything. Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian that was put in one of the worst imprisonments of the modern world, the Gulag Archipelago in, in, in Russia, way out in the boonies of Russia, in his book about the Gulag, He says, I came to the place that I thank God for my imprisonment because that's where Solzhenitsyn went from being an atheist to being a committed follower of Jesus Christ because he found out that he wasn't imprisoned if he knew God, that he was free because no one could imprison what happens to somebody when they really fall in love with Jesus and Jesus expresses his love for them. You can put them in any cell, any Vietnam cell, any... Chinese cell today, any Russian gulag cell, but if someone's in Christ, they are free. Amen? And that's what he found, and that's what Paul found. That's what we need to find in the sometimes imprisoning circumstances that we're living in in the United States of America. The Apostle Paul says, now listen to me. Don't listen to Dave. And I'm sitting with you today. 
Because I wrestle with all the things that I'm talking to you about. I'm sitting with you and I think, Paul, you're an old man that's walked with Jesus. And you're the real thing. You've been in prison for this. Teach me. And look what he says. The very first thing that he says is, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. I want you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And the way you're going to express it is I want you to be. Then he gets really concrete. I want you to be completely humble. I want you to be gentle. I want you to be patient. I want you to bear with one another in love. You need to balance your life with your calling. And this is the idea. I I could preach this message to you. Now listen, God saved you and he's done all these marvelous things from you. Jesus died on the cross freely for your sins. Now what I want you to do is I want you to earn that. I want you to earn it. I want you to prove that you were worthy. I've heard a lot of preaching like that. And the idea is, in other words, all right, Jesus has done so much for me. Now, how much can I do for him? And it's like you're constantly working to pay Jesus back. Like Jesus sits there with his arm full and says, ha ha, see what I did for you? Now you pay me back. It's not at all what Paul is saying. That gets us back into just the opposite of Paul's teaching. That's works. That's what all religion will do to you. The idea is that Jesus has done so much for you. Now you earn it back. That's not what, what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is this. The word for worthy means that you're balanced. You're balanced. It means like this. You understand what your calling is. What I want to challenge you to do this week, if you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with getting out of here, getting out of your marriage, getting out of your church, getting out of relationships with friends, part of the reasons you do that is because you're insecure. You feel very restless. You're, 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 you don't feel at ease inside. And there's usually some real bummer things in your life when you get alone with yourself. You don't like to be alone with yourself. And what you need to do, like if if I put you in secular counseling, what we're going to try to do is to get you to find a good identity. We're going to call you an identity structure. Like if I'm going to work with you as a a psychologist, I'm going to try to get you to, to build your life on a value that will make sense for you. I try to build your what your self confidence. If you're a school teacher today, you hear tons of talk about these kids need to feel really good about themselves. And a lot of kids feel bad about themselves. And we need to make sure they feel good about themselves. What the secular world can't really answer, though, is when I say, well, listen, this little kid lies and cheats and beats up all the other kids, and I've looked really deep in their life, and you know what? They're mean. How can I tell him the kid's really good when he really isn't good? The same thing can be true of your adult life. You take a really good look inside, and you look back over your life, and and from any sense of evaluation, if you're really honest... You're not really very good. So when you try to build your identity that way, it it turns out to be a farce. And you walk really high. Like, I remember in my own life, my little brother taught me how to barefoot ski. And, man, I remember, man, I came in after learning how to barefoot ski. I was in my early 30s. First of all, I thought that was amazing, man. I actually learned how to do this in my 30s, and I wasn't totally over the hill yet. And I remember, you know, walking really high, man. My identity, I'm a barefoot skier. I went, I said to Mary, hey, I just barefoot ski. She said, so what? I mean, she never even bet at night. It was no big deal at all. In fact, I found out that most people, they couldn't care less. Who cares? doesn't make any difference. And, man, my identity went back in the tank again. It was really neat. I had a great identity. When I was with footers, footers thought it was really neat that I learned how to do that. But I found out the world couldn't care less. And so my identity crashes again. It crashes and burns. So then I got to find something else that's going to make me feel good about myself. Anybody ever been there, done that? That's kind of a, most of you haven't done that crazy a deal. 
But every one of you have ideas of this is what makes me really a valuable person. This is what makes me feel loved. And this is what makes me really important. Some of you ladies, you know, you get your hair done and your makeup is done just right and you walk out, man, and you feel like, man, I'm really a valuable woman now and I'm important. I don't have to go and buy a bunch of clothes at the shopping center because I look good without them. (laughs) And then your best friend just nails you and says, man, that color absolutely stinks. I hate that color. (laughs) You go in the tank again. The Apostle Paul is saying he wants you to balance. And I, and I want you to, one of the things I pray the church family, we don't believe, and I don't believe, who you are in Christ. In chapter 1, it says that you are blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. That's the place to have them. In chapter 1, it said that the Son of God died and redeemed you. He totally paid the bill for your sin. So if you've invited Jesus in your heart, Jesus Christ, based upon his payment of the bill, you are totally clean, totally forgiven. You are forgiven children of God. At the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, you are the fullness of the one that fills everything. If I ask Jesus what really completes him, who he really looks forward to spending time with, if he had a choice, who would he be with? He chooses you. He chooses me. In chapter 2, we learn that we used to be dead. We used to not be responding to him. We cursed him. We hated him. We were totally in alien territory, but by a gift of his grace, totally unmerited, God loved us. Not because he was balancing, not because he saw some inherent good or saw that we loved him so much. In chapter 2, we learned that because the essence of our triune God is love, that he looked at a bunch of criminals, a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners that were dead, totally unresponsive to him. And he didn't turn away. Instead, he turned towards them and he gave his one and only son. And his his son died an agonizing, brutal death so that we could be scot-free. That's what chapter 2 is about. Chapter 3 says that now we become a new group. There's Jews and Gentiles who are totally different culturally. They're totally different religiously. They're totally different in a lot of ways ethnically. I mean, if ever there's groups, it's not going to go along. Take a bunch of New York Jews and put them together with a bunch of, of, of southern Texans. That's what the early church was like. You had all these Jews. In fact, for years, they hadn't been together. They don't touch each other. And suddenly, wham, they got to go to church together. Now, what is it going to take to hold this together? You know what Paul said it will take? It takes what we're talking about here. First of all, it takes the opposite of pride. You need to work hard. How are you going to balance your calling? You, you go back to your calling. And one of the things that happens to me when I go back to my calling is what makes me humble is I realize that all this stuff that happened to me in chapters 1 through 3, I didn't deserve any of it. I didn't earn it. I'm not better than anyone else. In fact, I'm really on the bottom scale. But by a miracle, I become at the top of the scale, loved by God in heaven. That's what humility flows from. Humility is not saying, well, I can't do anything, and I'm an idiot, so I might as well you know, just eat some worms anyway because I'm such a jerk, and I'm going to be really humble, and I won't say anything, I won't contribute because I'm such a low life. That's not humility. That's arrogance. And what you're really looking for is someone to feel sorry for you and tell you how good you are. A really humble person is a person that knows reality. 
They know that it's all a gift from God, and they realize that they've been gifted, and that every single one of you have a special ability, a special place. We desperately need you in the body of Christ. In fact, the Son of God, when he saved you, gave you supernatural abilities to help to build his kingdom, and how desperately we need every one of you to be using those gifts. But you didn't receive those gifts because of your earning power, and that's what helps you to be humble. And humble is really important. Because Mary's pride was hurt. She thought she married this wise, intelligent person. He's such an idiot. He bangs cars up, and then he doesn't even have the wisdom to hang around and tell me about it. So if she's arrogant and she's prideful and not humble, then our marriage is going to end. If I'm feeling like you guys don't appreciate me, man, I, you know, I've given up a lot to come down here to this small-town Texas place and And I feel misunderstood myself. And if I'm prideful and I think about myself, then I'm going to tell those elders, I'm sorry, I'm not going to teach anymore. You can have to find someone else to teach. That's arrogance. The very first thing in human relationships, if you're going to get along with your friends, if you're going to get along with with your marriage, if you're going to get along with your fellow church family, it begins with humility. In fact, if you feel like I'm out of here, I'm locking the door, the question I want to ask yourself is, what are you arrogant about? What are you prideful about? When you're hurt, you need to ask, why am I hurt and does it have to do with Jesus' kingdom or mine? Did you hear what I said? When you're angry, you need to ask, what am I hurt about and does it have to do with Jesus' kingdom or does it have to do with my kingdom? If it has to do with Jesus' kingdom, then you need to be angry. Because that leads to the second word. The second word is, first of all, we're humble. Paul also says we need to be gentle. Some of you have the translation meek. And most of us have the idea, and this is where most of us view Christianity. In fact, a lot of you men view Christianity like this. In fact, I would say it's one of the, it's one of the real problems among Christian men today. Your idea is that to be a follower of Jesus means that you kind of float around. You're like Casper the Friendly Ghost. You kind of just smoothly mellow. You're mellow. It's kind of like you took too much marijuana. And that's real gentle. In other words, when I was in the 60s, one of the ways you could tell that people took marijuana is they were really meek. Hey, man. Man, I could hit him over the head with a baseball bat. Like one of the things when you're barefoot skiing is you want to be easy and you want to not be that uptight. You don't want to be jerking your feet around or throwing your hand around when you're going 40 miles an hour. You don't do that very much. So actually, some of the footers actually smoke marijuana. Not a good idea. But they do that so they can be blah. And a lot of you have the idea that Jesus is like a heavenly drug that takes all the zap out of you. In fact, that's why some of you men aren't into this Jesus thing very much. I want to share something about Jesus. One of you men even talked to me about this earlier, this month. Their life had been revolutionized because they thought Jesus is about being meek, which means that he never gets angry about anything. When the money changers turned a house of prayer into a mall, Jesus came in and said, you know, guys, we need to be nice in my father's temple. And I don't think it's a good idea that you're making a ton of noise and your, your change isn't very good. And, you know, why don't we discuss this and get out of here? We really, let's have a discussion. We'll meet tomorrow and maybe you could leave. No, the meek and lowly son of God went in. He kicked the table over there and he started, grabbed a whip and he started whipping everybody and threw the money all over the place. And he said, you caught my father's house. That's supposed to be a place of prayer. And you've turned into a den of thieves. Most of you ladies are scared to death of that. 
But that's what a man ought to do when he sees sin. I wasn't angry because I was abused or because I was offended. Prayer is one of the most vital things we have. What this word means is it's a man and a woman that know when to get angry and when not to be angry. It's the golden mean. This word means, in Greek, it means the golden mean between learning how to be angry when you should be angry and when to be silent when you should be silent. And the word means this wise person gets angry about what they're supposed to be angry and they have the gumption to do something about it. But they don't get angry about stuff that they don't need to get angry about. That's what the word means. And you say, well, Dave, how can I get that balance? Follow Jesus. Jesus called the Pharisees a den of vipers and and called them whitewashed sepulchers. That's very strong and it's powerful. John the Baptist said, who told you guys to come out here? You're just a bunch of vipers. He was prophetic. Now, he wasn't yelling at people that had hurt him or offended him or he was upset because of personality conflict. He really loved them. He was trying to get them to turn around. They were falling asleep in their unrepentant state. This word means that we're humble, but it also means that we understand God's kingdom. We get angry about what we need to get angry about, but we're easy and gentle about the things that a lot of other people get angry about. And Jesus has that beautiful balance. And one of the ways you say, Dave, how do I know whether I'm gentle? How do little kids relate to you? We'll spend an evening together with a bunch of little kids, and I'll tell you whether you have this trait. Because little kids know it just like that. And there's, you know, some of you have toddlers, they're going to reject everybody. And that's just because we've got to work with the Holy Spirit needs to come upon them. I'm just eating you a little bit. But most kids come towards someone that's gentle. Especially you men, that's a great test for you. Because a little child is extremely perceptive about your inner spirit. And if you have a stressed out, very angry spirit. Some of you work with horses. A horse is very perceptive. I've never met a horse trainer yet that produces horses that don't have wheels that are broken. In other words, horses that are really powerfully trained and they run really strong and they're obedient and they cut the way that they should... Every one of those horses that I've ever seen will have a trainer who has this quality. They're very disciplined, they're very consistent, but they're easy. There's a, I would call it, there's a quietness in their life. Now, they might beat their wife, but they don't beat their horse. And so that's bad, but you know what I'm talking about. That's, that'll give you a good picture That'll give you a good picture of what this word means. Because that person, that trainer, is very consistent and he has a quietness. And you ladies need to word. This is These are qualities for all of us. That we need to be humble and we need to be gentle. We know when to get angry at righteous indignation, with righteous indignation, and when it's from hell that we're being angry and we ask the Spirit to calm us. The third thing here is to be patient. My idea of patience is I'm really angry with you, but I'm not going to knock your block off right now. I'm going to go away somewhere and be by myself. And what we'll do, instead of hitting you right now, I'm just going to hit you repeatedly for the next two weeks because I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to open my heart to you. We're not going to really deal with this. And then we'll forget about it, and I'm being patient. It's the person that says, I'm being patient with you. I want you to know I'm really being patient with you. 
That's not patience. It's not just... And, and some of you say, well, you know, I'm hanging in there. This person's a total jerk. And man, I think their actions are terrible. They're my irregular person. They drive me bats. But man, they're believers, so I'm being patient with them. I just expressed a ton of anger, a ton of indignation, a ton of rejection. What I was just saying, well, this fellow believer isn't like me. I think they're really quirky. I think they're nuts. But God says I need to love them, so I'll tolerate them. J. Vernon McGee used to say, you know, I love the brethren. Doesn't mean I need to live with them. That isn't patience. The word patience isn't just standing in the Walmart line when it's 600 people long and, you know, tapping your foot and then not knocking the, the, the salesperson's head off when you get there. That's not what we're talking about. This is long-suffering. In fact, the next phrase Paul uses is real important. It says you need to be patient, bearing with one another. That's the phrase. Putting up with one another in love. And that's related to this idea of being patient. There's an old English word that communicates more. It means you're long-suffering. And what it means is that you see the weaknesses in others and you put up with it. You bear with it. Why do you do that? Because you see your own crippledness. You see your own brokenness. Every one of us, like with the people that I get really impatient with, the thing that I get impatient about is I see things in them, and interesting enough, a lot of times the things that I get impatient with them, other people would tell me that I kind of do the same thing. And it makes me angry because I kind of see myself reflected on it. I arrogantly say, well, I'm not like you, when a lot of times I am. Another thing that I can do is I get impatient with people that I, that they, I, don't, feel they're, you know, I don't feel they're as quick in getting something or I don't feel that they follow directions the way I want them to do and on and on it goes. And in my life, I'm saying, I'm better than them. If I were them, man, I would do a lot better than that. Why don't they get it? That's easy. It's not patience. And what the Lord is saying here, what, the way that in your marriage, you know, one of your attitudes of your marriage need to be, I'm going to put up with my wife today. I'm going to put up with my husband today. I'm going to bear with them. And you're not, you're not often taught that. What you guys are taught is if this person turns out to be irregular, if this person turns out to be a little bit weird, if they turn out to have habits that you don't really like, then you turn off the faucet and you go somewhere else. And when you turn the faucet back on, and then you go on with your relationships. Well, you're going to be in and out of marriages, in and out of churches, in and out of everything. Because if you really want to find out, you know when you find out about love? When Mary opened the door. She didn't leave the door shut forever and ever. When I went back, the door was open. Why did she do that? Because of her calling. She's a daughter of God. Jesus didn't say, if your husband caves in your car, you're out of the marriage. You don't have to work that one out. I'll let you try another relationship. Mary was really committed. No, we made a promise in Nebraska. And one of the promises I said, in the good times and the bad times, this is a really bad time, but I've been called by my Savior to bear with you, to be humble, and to not feel that I could never do that. To not feel that, you know, how could you be such an idiot? Because I'm much more skilled than you are, and I'm careful when I drive. And how could I be married to such a crazy guy that doesn't pay attention, his head's in the sky somewhere? 
And therefore, we have irrevocable differences. There's no way, man. He's a theology guy that's floating around in the sky somewhere, and I'm a practical, everyday person. This relationship's never going to work. I even have a, a psychological personality test to prove it'll never work. I'm out of here. Speaking about very serious things, Mary said, I need to be patient, and I need to be humble. I need to put up with Dave, and it's worth it. It's really worth it, guys. Because we love each other in a way that we never dreamed. I, we, I was only 20 when I got married. But we found a togetherness. We found life together. We found intimacy. We found passion. That's much deeper than anything you can just imagine when you're only 20 years of age or 18 or whatever it might be. Am I glad? I didn't leave the church. Those two elders, one of them is in heaven and one of them is still with us. And they're, they're my very committed dear friends that we've gone through facing death and accidents together we've faced terminal illnesses together we've also broken ground for this building and we've cried over kids are going to be baptized and we've and i look over this audience and some of the the the, the sons of those leaders are now all grown up and their little kids were talking about how they received jesus and how much they want to be baptized i would have missed all that if I would have opted out of the family of God. That organization that, that says, I'm, I, I can decide I'm not going to teach anymore. The Lord Jesus says, David, you're calling. You don't decide where you preach and where you don't preach. You don't turn on the faucet and be used of the Spirit in one place. If I tell you to preach in the dark regions of hell, you're going to have to go. So get over it. Don't come back with that stupid idea that you're a doctor and that you don't have to do that and you're smarter than him. That's arrogant, David. Because I can turn off my spirit's giftedness upon you and no one's going to listen anymore. No one's life will be changed. I'm going to turn away the spiritual elements that causes someone to hear my word taught and the miracle of grace takes place and somebody says, I'm going to hold my marriage together. And this week, I'm going to really get along with God. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to help me to be humble, to help me to be meek and gentle, to help me to be long-suffering, to help me to bear with people, to help me to be diligent to preserve the unity, the bonds of the Spirit that we'll go on and talk about. You see, the Lord can turn that off. So I don't have the right to decide that I'm not going to speak there anymore. And those are the decisions I want you to make. 